Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. Science. Oh, that was a good one. (laughs) I can't even look. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Witts out of UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today we're going to discuss an academic article called A Prospective Investigation of the Decision to Open Up a Romantic Relationship. You guys, this is content. I'm really excited about this one. (laughs) Uh, In addition, as always, we're going to have our pop-in culture segment with Jacob and then good or bad advice sent in by some lovely listeners. But before we get to all of that, how are you all doing? Well, I don't think any of us are doing as well as Sarah. Oh my. (laughs) Why don't you tell us why, Sarah? So I just got back this morning from a week-long vacation in Maui. What? And yeah, it was amazing. I I feel like they say there's like research uh, that says that there's like a maximum amount of time at which a vacation is helpful. And after that, it actually becomes like burdensome and stressful. Like there's like leisure research that's like, I don't know, it's like eight or nine nights. I don't know exactly what it is, but a little over a week. I don't feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like I could have stayed there forever doing exactly what I was doing, which was basically just floating in a pool and just like gently waving a menu at a man who would come and bring me (laughs) drinks and napping in the afternoon and getting a few massages and then like floating in the ocean yeah i mean it was really amazing yeah it was really great that's awesome yeah freaking spectacular the the pictures were absolutely gorgeous you were in fact in paradise yes literally people live there that's like i mean they don't live at that resort i don't think but they (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they live in that weather. I know. Uh, we don't live in that weather in Iowa, but, you know, no. we have cheap housing, so there's that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You're right. Tomato, tomato. Exactly. Right. Uh, same Z's difference. Same Z. But we did have Friendsgiving this weekend, and that was a lot of fun. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yay. What did you guys eat? Of course, that's my first question. <laughs> Chelsea made an incredible turkey that was really good, and then our friends brought everything else. Nice. Heather, incredible mashed potatoes. Our friend neighbor Michael brought really great uh, corn casserole. That's like a an Iowa special there for you. <laughs> Mm. Um, we had a really good Rebecca, if you're listening, a really good trifle. Is this just how you get your friends yeah, to this, listen, though? Oh, yeah, you this just is what I'm, doing. I'm trying to them. shout them all out so they'll listen <laughs> to the podcast. Right. <laughs> Artificially inflating our statistics. Yeah. <laughs> that person I met on the street the other day, Timothy, yeah. shout out to you, the person. <laughs> Timothy, are you listening? Timothy. That is amazing. So I have two really fun things. So I went to go see a concert last week. It was Jump Little Children, one of my favorite bands ever. It's a very small regional band. No one's heard of. I was going to say, you listen to really way cooler music than I do. Because <laughs> I've never heard of them. Uh, listen to them. You're going to absolutely love them. But Jump Little Children? Jump Little Children. I okay. They were very popular when I was in college. Then they split up and then they just got back together a couple of years ago so they're on this tour so I was so excited to see them so I 
traveled about two hours to nearby Asheville, North Carolina to see them. I we, we got there early. I was like one person deep from the stage. I was that person with like a beer in my hand held up and just singing at the top of my lungs every single one of their songs. It was so excited. But by the end of it, obviously I was drunk. We needed to go get pizza. So we went to go get pizza and there were some people standing near us in the crowd and they came with us to get pizza. And this guy, I'm gonna be honest, I don't remember his name. He um, was talking about his podcast. And I was like, oh, I have a podcast too, because everybody has a podcast. And he started talking and just talking and talking. Um, And so I was like, oh, I think he would really like my podcast. So I took his phone, subscribed to our podcast, and downloaded like five episodes. So if you're listening, my guy, thanks. (laughs) Shout out. (laughs) <laughs> also artificially inflating <laughs> statistics. So that's another way to artificially inflate our uh, statistics is just like drunkenly force people to subscribe to your podcast. <laughs> but anyway. Um, to think I could have been doing that all week in Maui, though, just going around to people's little beds, just hitting their su- subscribe buttons I mean, on their phones. Five, like, five stars, five stars, five stars. I should have rated it. Duh. Duh. Get your... Get your head in the game. <laughs> you just genuinely wanted him to have the content. You didn't I, even I help really us in any real way. The listening skills that we teach. Um, he probably, if he is listening after me criticizing him, he probably won't listen ever again. Anyway, um, so this weekend is officially marks the beginning of cookie madness in my household. Every year I cook or bake. Maybe... 20 dozen cookies and give them to kids and all these all kids kids teachers and and all of the the people around us so you guys my kitchen looks like flour exploded and various things it's a disaster um i was cooking like and making all the doughs almost all day yesterday because i make all the doughs at once and then like i systematically bake them and it was time for dinner and my husband was like you want to come to dinner? I was like, oh, I got to clean up the mess. And he was like, just just come to dinner. I'll clean that up later. And you guys, my heart like grew so much. I was like, thank Aww. God I don't have to freaking clean up the disaster Aww, yeah. in the kitchen. Also, my husband knows that I might not be the best kitchen cleaner. So, <laughs> so he's like, no, no, I'm in charge of this because it'll get done right. And I was like, fair, fair, fair play. Um, the and Instagrams also told me that you were making some cheese this I did weekend. make some cheese this week, and it was a version of Havarti cheese. Um, yeah, so hopefully I'll be able to taste that in two to three months. Yeah. <laughs> it has to age. Long-term yeah, payout. I, know, right? <laughs> I got to try some of my cheese for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and I got the highest compliments. My six-year-old said, that looks like real cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband said, Oh, it doesn't taste bad. You guys, <laughs> Those are hot. I mean, I will take it. Nice. When I was expecting it nice. to like be inedible, like those both are like the best praise I could have ever had. In my house, we have a rule: the cook doesn't clean, mm. and that's because my husband can't cook. <laughs> <laughs> I make sure I don't do any of that cleanup work. We have we have a, a temporal division of labor. So I'm more of a morning person. My husband's more of an evening person. So I do all of the morning everything and he does all of the evening everything. It's It works out very nice because I'm usually so tired by the end of the evening. Like I'm lucky to just still be 
sitting upright, staring at the wall. Um, uh huh. Yeah. And sometimes I go to bed with the kids, like whatever. <laughs> uh, but I can wake up in the morning, chipper as can be. Get all those kids ready. Keep that energy up. Get everybody in a good mood and off to school. Here we go, you guys. <laughs> So kind of a follow up from the last pod, but I should tell you about some adventures in pregnancy in the Keenan Priest household. Yes. Uh, So the other night we got home, we were doing out with some friends. I think we'd gone to dinner. It's like 1030 and Chelsea's like, I want a grilled cheese sandwich. It's like, okay. And I go and I open, I was like, well, we don't have any cheese. She's like, what? That's a proper like, reaction to not having like, cheese in the house. She's like, well, what about this cheese? I was like, well, I put that on my eggs that I had the other day. She's like, you did what? <laughs> I was like, I, I'm sorry. I didn't know I was supposed to save the cheese. She's like, well, I want a grilled cheese sandwich. I was like, well, do you want me to run to the grocery store? She's like, no, that's too far away. It's like, okay. No, no, she's like, will you make me a smoothie? Uh, I was like, yeah. yeah, I can make you a smoothie. I get all the stuff out for the smoothie. She's like, no. I want a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so 10.30, I go. Aww. Yeah, and, of course. Uh, I go to, to the grocery store. I'm like one of like three people in there. <laughs> and I just get two blocks of cheese because I was like, I need cheese and we got to have some backup cheese. Because you never know. <laughs> <laughs> and I made a grilled sandwich at about 11 o'clock at night. I was, like, I've heard a lot of stories about pregnancy, but and I didn't know if they were like true or people are just embellishing. And, and they're actually true. They're true. True. Yeah. You'll also need backup cheese for after the baby comes. Yeah. Just That's a rule that continues. You just have the food and the backup food because exactly. you're not going to go to the grocery store for a while. Food, food is very important, you guys. Yes. You guys make fun of me for going on and on about food. But it's kind of like the best. Well, let's get started. Now time for Poppin' Culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family. But a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Also, we all just kind of love pop culture. So this is our excuse to talk about it. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? So I'm taking a little bit of a break from our regularly scheduled Temptation Island (gasps) updates because I, the season finale started, but the two hour season finale will be Thursday. So you can expect on the next podcast, we'll wrap everything up nicely. Perfect. But I want to talk to, uh, talk about a show I got sucked into this weekend Ooh. on Amazon Prime. Okay. Have you all heard of The Feed? No. No. Okay, so let me tell you the premise of The Feed. So it's kind of like Netflix, or not Netflix, Amazon Prime's answer to Black Mirror. Okay. Except instead of being like, if you're familiar with Black Mirror, it's very like one episode is a whole story. This television series really focuses on technology and how technology affects our lives, kind of like Black Mirror. But what I like about and what I want to talk about today is how technology alters family boundary making. Okay. So talk to us first about what boundary making is. Okay. So in family relationships, there's a lot of systems and subsystems that go on, right? So if you want to think about a subsystem, uh, that would be like 
romantic partners or parents, right? They're a subsystem that have their own relationship that is different from the relationship between one of those people and their parents. Okay. You know, or you'd have like a sibling subsystem is how the siblings interact together because that's different than how one sibling interacts with one parent. So the subsystems are always two people or is it just like a specific type of relationship? Um, it can be a little bit of both, okay. right? Sometimes it can just be two people. Sometimes it can be... But families also make boundaries, you know, they have a boundary of how their family interacts with, like, their in-laws or something, right? Right, right. So there's lots of different types of boundaries we make. Um, and boundaries are really just about how we set uh, emotional distance. Healthy boundaries, you're able to alternate between being close and being separate, and that doesn't cause any problems. Enmeshed boundaries are when there's this expectation and um, idea that you should always have emotional closeness and any distance is seen as a potential threat. Whereas rigid boundaries are all about keeping the structure the way it is. Like they're very firm boundaries where um, you either allow for a lot of emotional closeness and don't want anything outside of that, or there's a lot of emotional distance and you keep people at arm's length. So those are kind of examples of boundaries. And so I'm going to give an example in this show that's really far-fetched, but I think it can kind of speak to us of how we think about how we are using technology right now to make boundaries. So the show, the feed centers on the Hatfield family. Lawrence and Meredith are the Hatfield parents. And Lawrence is this guy who created the feed. And what the feed is, is it is an embedded technology that allows you to connect with people in the world around you without any machinery, right? You wouldn't need a phone or the internet. It's just like this very embedded communication. So you can talk to people. It records all of your thought. It records all your experiences. It can project things into the world that can allow you to communicate with people one at a time. Lawrence and Meredith have two sons. Tom, who's actually a psychotherapist, Ooh. who specializes in people who have become so ingrained in the feed that they need help oh. being able to function without it. And Ben, who is the other son, who works at the parents' company and is really obsessed with trying to be the favorite son because he feels like Tom is. Anyway, Tom gets married to Kate, and they, get, they are pregnant. And during one of the episodes, Kate feels like somebody from the outside has been into her feed. Mm. Uh, and what we find out that happens, spoiler alert... <laughs> is that Lawrence has hacked into Kate's feed to implant the feed into their unborn child. What? Right, because Lawrence was worried that Kate and Tom wouldn't want their kid to be a part of the feed because of some of the negative consequences. So without their permission, he hacks in and installs the feed. Definitely sounds like a boundary being violated there. Yeah, a definite boundary <laughs> violation. But what it made Yikes. me think about is if we think about technology these days, there is that opportunity to have real-time feedback from parents that may not have existed before, right? Yeah. If you are Skyping or video chatting with one of your parents and you're interacting with your kid in a certain way, they might have opinions about that. 
Or if you're thinking about how you want to share your kid in the world, you know, you post pictures of your kid online, those could be there forever. Right. Or if you're thinking about like how you want to communicate and keep boundaries around your romantic partnership, technology has a huge impact on that. So for example, you know, I wasn't ever trained about how to deal with Facebook infidelity, right? Where a partner finds out that they've been, their partner has been talking to an ex-partner on Facebook, right? So technology has made old connections easier to form, has the potential to enmesh families even more, but it also has the positive aspects of being able to connect families who may live at great physical distances more so than we ever have before right yeah both chelsea and i live far away from our families of origin but we're able to see and talk to our parents on a pretty regular basis so what i think and what i think the feed is trying to talk about when it comes to family relationships is when we think about setting boundaries with family members We also need to think about how technology is infused to that and being able to have conversations around that, right? I think it's important that parents not only have uh, conversations with their kids about social media presence and being online and potential dangers about that, but partners should also have conversations about what is appropriate content to be putting online. What do we share? with the world around us in me, you know, and what do we keep to ourselves? Uh, How do we communicate uh, using all of these different mediums? And what does that say about our partnership and about what we want people to know about our partnership? And how do we connect with family members and the frequency of that? You know, there's some people who are texting with a sibling or a parent or calling them quite frequently. And is that something that's necessarily healthy? It could be, but it also could not be. But I think it's really important and to be explicit that people talk about technology boundaries in terms of those emotions, right? Because nowadays it's really easy to stay connected with somebody. You could be at dinner with, you know, a family member looking right at them and texting with a person who is not there the whole time. And what does that say about your emotional connection and the technological boundaries of your relationship? So I'm not somebody, I'm pretty agnostic when it comes to the role that technology can have in our lives. Yeah, I, I think it can be a net positive. It can be a net negative. I think it depends on, especially when it comes to relationships, how you are setting boundaries with technology. So don't be like Lawrence Hatfield and hack into your unborn <laughs> grandchild and install them with technology. Yes, don't but do also, that. Don't do that. But also have conversations about technology, have conversations about when technology should be used and potentially when it shouldn't. Right. And also about ways that you can use technology to enhance your relationships. Because I think technology can be problematic in boundaries when it is not discussed. When we just kind of assume that the boundaries that we might have with other things extend to technology. Because of the different mediums, I think it's important to talk about it. And respect that people have differences in how they feel about technology, especially the social media platforms. Um, And it doesn't make you bad or them bad or good or, or whatever, not applying a value to it, but just respecting how people feel about technology in, in general, I think is part of that conversation too. And that that changes and evolves over the life 
life course right. of a family or life course of relationships. I mean, I'm thinking about, I didn't wasn't a huge user of social media until I had a baby and then I was so socially isolated and had no idea what I was doing that in a lot of ways, social media and having access to my iPhone all the time was what kept me going those first few yeah. months. Um, and if I'd been judged for it, that would have been, that would have made that really hard. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And more broadly too, you know, there's a lot of conversation now um, around how bad screen time potentially is for kids. Yeah. And I think it's actually showing the opposite directionality, right? Kids that are anxious and depressed are tending to engage in screens more and in different ways than kids who are not. So it's not that engaging in screens or gaming or social media is necessarily having an effect, you know, like necessarily causing depression or anxiety, but Mm. that it is a way that those tools are used that can amplify or reduce isolation, depression, anxiety. That makes sense. Well, yeah, because I think technology, you know, they always talk about technology as what connects people. And because it is a mechanism to connect people, at least that's how they sell it to us. Really, they're probably just mining our data so they can make money. But because it's a technology (laughs) to connect people, um, you have to think about how that connection is, creates boundaries or lack of boundaries within your important relationships. I love it. I think I'm going to have to check out the feed. But additionally, all I can think about right now is that Matrix 4 was just announced and it's coming out. And Jonathan Groff was cast in it. What? Oh, it all comes back to food and Jonathan Groff. (laughs) (laughs) That's really what this podcast is about, right? I was going to say, Patricia. Patricia's uh, Patricia's time to get us to think we're yeah. talking about something, but she's <laughs> that's like right. cheese, yeah. soup, Jonathan Groff. That's that's all it is. That's all it it's is. It's a very specific <laughs> platform. <laughs> uh, my hope is that this podcast one day will get me free food and also access to meeting Jonathan Groff, or at the very minimum, getting some sweet, sweet Broadway tickets to see him perform. <laughs> what? What? You, I mean, you found out. What? You found out. <laughs> Jonathan, if you're listening, if you want to be our first interview. He's not. We will he's not on Twitter. Please make Patricia's he's dream. He's not on Twitter. He's not on Twitter. Oh. We will at you on Instagram. He doesn't do any social. I guess I know too much about him. Let's move on. Oh, so I'm just saying he has good technology boundaries. I think so. I think. I mean, you're right. It all ties back to Jonathan Groff. Anyway, now moving on to the academic deep dive segment. Today we're going to focus on consensual non-monogamy and discuss a paper that is currently in press in the Journal of Social Psychological and Personality Science. It's called A Prospective Investigation of the Decisions to Open Up a Romantic Relationship. This study was done by Dr. Annalise Murphy at the University of Utah, Dr. Samantha Joel at Western University, and Dr. Amy Muse at York University. Um, just one thing. I love that you're giving Dr. Murphy the doctor title. But Dr. Murphy oh, is actually pursuing right. a Master of Arts degree, so she's you're not a right. doctor you're yet. Right. 
in clinical mental health at Bradley. This is her undergraduate research. So shout out to Annalise for doing such a kick-ass project as an undergraduate. Holy mackerel. Nice work. So as always, a link to a preprint of this article is going to be available in the episode description. And also we're going to post it on Twitter as well. So a little bit of background about this research before Sarah takes off. The authors highlight in the opening of this article and also something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast about how much our relationships, our romantic relationships in particular, are expected to do for us. So they're supposed to be the primary source of intimacy, the only source of sexual intimacy, provide acceptance, safety, support, and allow space to for us to grow uh, personally also survive those uh, daily household challenges, provide financial security, and include supportive co-parenting if you have children, and on and on and on that list goes. And really, uh, some, some couples, and quite a few, perhaps just aren't able to survive all of these expectations. Sexual desire and activity on average, we know tend to decrease over the course of a relationship, and infidelity is actually one of the most common reasons for for divorce. So seeking sexual um, intimacy outside of the relationship, infidelity. One possible option, um, and the, the ultimately the, the the kind of the point of this this article is consensual non-monogamy. So this is where the couple actively decides not to be sexually exclusive with one another and open up their relationship to other partners, to other sexual partners. Examples could include swinging, this is extradiatic sex together in social settings, open relationships, so extradiatic sex independently from one another, polyamory, extradiatic relationships that are sexual and emotionally intimate at the same time. Um, the author suggests that one in five single Americans have practiced some form of consensual non-monogamy at some point in their life, and people who do practice non-consensual consensual non-monogamy, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of that, people who do practice it tend to have similar relationship satisfaction to the, the their peers who uh, are monogamous in their relationships. And studi- some studies show they actually have better communication, more trust, and less jealousy than their monogamous peers as well. Really, really fascinating stuff and kind of goes counter to maybe our stereotypical view of people who have open relationships, at least portrayed in the media. But the majority of prior research, however, has been cross-sectional compared to longitudinal, which is kind of the gold standard, um, which we've talked about in previous podcasts. The desire to have longitudinal data is really, really fantastic. But because of this cross-sectional nature of all of the previous studies, they were unable to tell the impact of opening up a relationship on the quality of that relationship. So that's what they sought to do. So Sarah, can you tell our wonderful pod listeners more about this study and what the authors found? Yes, I can. Um, So as you just described, this is longitudinal in that they prospectively um, identify their sample and then follow them over two months. So I'll describe that a little bit. So instead of capturing retrospectively what people who open up their relationships think that they thought beforehand or kind of what's going on at the same time, they identified 233 partnered individuals, 80 men, 143 women, who were planning to engage in consensual non-monogamy, but who had not done that yet, and then tracked them over two months. 
So they're using the term longitudinal. It's only two surveys, baseline, and then two months later, but still unique in the in the literature. Not something that had been done before. Absolutely. Um, So you know how they by any chance do you know how they recruited this sample? This seems just like such a really unique, difficult sample to a a group of people to try and get in touch with to complete a survey. Yep. So they recruited them specifically from consensual, non-monogamy related websites and forums. That makes sense. So I think I think we should come back around and talk about too how that's a limitation Mm -hmm. of this research Um, but I agree that would be a really challenging group of people to find specifically just using our usual methods of recruiting participants but but they do a beautiful job in this paper outlining all of the specifics of their methods in ways that are super approachable and easily understood it's just really um, aside from how I think the content is interesting I really recommend this article as just a nice example of how to do good research it's really crystal clear yeah um so the qualities of their participants about half were married 45 percent identified as heterosexual another third as bisexual uh two-thirds said they had planned to engage in polyamory specifically a third in an open relationship and about one in five in swinging so there's a little bit of an overlap because participants could choose more than one of those and first what they plan to do is compare participants relationship quality sexual satisfaction and life satisfaction before and after opening up their relationship and then second, to compare these aspects of satisfaction between participants who did open their relationships and those who did not. And then lastly, to look at how these aspects of well-being might have functioned as a result of the motivations for opening up the relationship. So is the reasons why they're considering consensual non-monogamy have anything to do with the outcomes that they then find. So at the end of the study, about two-thirds of the participants had opened up their relationship. And what they found was that those who'd opened up their relationship had higher relationship quality, greater sexual satisfaction, and marginally greater life satisfaction at the end of the study. But of those differences, only sexual satisfaction appeared to be something that changed over the course of the study, and only for those who opened up their relationship, or rather, increased over the course of the study. So sexual satisfaction improved for participants who opened up their relationship, and decreased for those who did not. Oh, interesting. Okay. Meaning they did not find that those who opened up their relationship had higher quality relationships because of consensual non-monogamy. It seemed to be kind of a pre-existing difference. It was really just the sexual satisfaction that increased over time for those who opened up. So basically people who opened up their relationships started with with higher satisfaction and then it continued to increase? So at the end of the study, what they found was that those who'd opened up the relationship were higher in all of those three categories. They had greater relationship quality, greater sexual satisfaction, and marginally greater life satisfaction. But of those differences between those who opened up the relationship and those who did not, really only sexual satisfaction was tied to consensual non-monogamy. Meaning, for those people who opened up the relationship... 
they experienced increases in their sexual satisfaction. Those who did not open up their relationship experienced decreases in sexual satisfaction. Whereas people who opened their relationship didn't necessarily experience those higher quality relationships because of their consensual non-monogamy. It was really more of a a baseline difference that kind of exaggerated a bit over the study. Um, Meaning people who end up opening up their relationship likely have a higher quality relationship to begin with. Right. Which is really, really fascinating that the people who chose to open up feel like they have a better relationship compared to people who thought about opening up, opening their relationship, but ultimately didn't. Again, perhaps somewhat counterintuitive to what we would think about people who choose to open up their relationships. Yes. And that difference in the sexual satisfaction increase for people who opened their relationship was more pronounced, was a bigger difference for people whose motivation to open their relationship was that their sexual relationship with their initial partner was incompatible. They had different interests, different desires, different needs, that that was their motivation for opening up their relationship. And so those who then went on, in fact, to do that experienced a greater increase in sexual satisfaction. I understand. Right. Yes. Wow. Um, Which makes sense. I mean, it's it's a tricky research question to ask, but it makes sense that if you think that the issue is the relationship itself and then you um, seek a sexual relationship consensually outside of that partnership that you could experience more benefits because that was really kind of the initial conflict rather than this intrinsic belief about the benefits of multiple partners or something right yeah so i i think that there are also some important caveats to what they're finding here As you suggested earlier, they had some really specific ways of recruiting their participants that mean that all of the people that participated in the study, all 233, were already considering opening up their relationship at the start of the study. Nobody was had negative thoughts about it. Nobody was not considering it. Nobody was just general public. These were all people that were already considering consensual non-monogamy. Right. And so... This is not people who are considering infidelity. This is people who are considering having oh, yeah. a conversation with their partner. They maybe already had yes. a conversation with, with their partner. Yes. So it's a very specific yes. group of people. Yes. So they're already enthusiastic believers. Right. But... Um, it still may mean that consensual non-monogamy is a healthy relationship option for people who are already thinking about pursuing it, that it might benefit their sex life. Um, I also personally think a really very important limitation is that there's no partner reports. So each of these participants were individuals reporting on this process. So we don't know. We have no idea what their partner feels about this. Nope. Yeah. Nope. We don't even technically know that it's consensual. <laughs> we know that they're that, saying it's consensual non-monogamy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The consent, technically consent is a two-person <laughs> process. And I also, what I think is really important about that is that they're talking about increases in sexual satisfaction, but if there's not partner reports, those findings are specific to that one right. individual person, that part, that one partner, meaning the sexual satisfaction measure is an individual-based measure that rates that individual sex life as good or bad or pleasant or unpleasant, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the quality of the sexual relationship within that initial partnership. So the benefits of consensual non-monogamy for those who open their relationship might be for the individual and may or may not be for the initial partnership that especially if that was a partnership that was had some incompatibility and their sexual needs 
may not necessarily benefit from this process. We don't know what that looks like. And and the follow-up period was only two months. So we also don't know how the relationship quality trajectories might fluctuate over is that is that introduction of a new sexual partner is that satisfaction uh uh, short-lived or is it sustained Mm -hmm. over over a long period of time and also correct me if i'm wrong sarah uh but we don't also know like what these uh consensual non-monogamous relationships look like after they open them up right because Swinging is different from polyamory, which is different from, you know, uh, just an open relationship in general. Right. They rated the relationship quality of that initial partnership. Mm -hmm. You're right that they were not then expanding that to more of like a network analysis of these relationship, the quality of these relationships with these other people as well, which would be very complicated to do. Yeah. An interesting question for sure. So I think aside from this maybe being a healthy, viable option for these people who are already considering it, I think there are maybe some broader implications aside from just consensual non-monogamy also that the authors also highlight, I think, that they don't know why these benefits are occurring for sexual satisfaction. But if it's about novelty or excitement or improved and more open communication about sex lives, those are things that can be brought into partnerships that are not considering consensual non-monogamy also. That that doesn't necessarily require an additional partner or um, bringing someone else into the relationship, which I think they don't tease that out necessarily, but I think are important kind of flavors to take away. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So we don't really know why this is happening or the mechanisms causing having an mm. open sexual relationship linking to improved sexual satisfaction. If it is in fact like you're saying, being more open and communicative about your sexual relationship, that that uh, factor or that mechanism might be able to apply to um, monogamous relationships and also improve their sexual satisfaction potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say kind of what the findings resonated for, for me. I, th- I was going to agree with you. I thought the way this was presented and written was so clear and so insightful and thoughtful and the authors just did a great job with it um but it made me think too like i've worked with consensually non-monogamous monogamous couples in um in my practice and what i notice is the ones that come to see me that are consensually non-monogamous aren't actually starting consensual non-monogamy at this high level of relationship satisfaction Oftentimes oh, it becomes, okay, you we can open up the relationship so the relationship will stay intact. And then that mm-hmm. doesn't end up working well. So I think mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to study the process of entering into consensual non-monogamy mm-hmm. because, like I said, I think uh, there's a lot of people who have healthy, happy, consensually non-monogamous relationships and they can work really well. I also think that if you are entering into consensual non-monogamy, as like a last ditch effort to save your relationship it's never a good idea right um yeah 
because you have a clinical sample. You're describing people who are coming to therapy, right. yeah. and it, it may be for and, a reason. And this does mm-hmm. not necessarily seem like a clinical sample. No. So there might be different no. things going on with both of these samples. For sure. You're seeing in therapy and, and this sample. So consensual mm-hmm. non-monogamy, uh, opening up your relationship, might have a different impact depending on the baseline or the, the starting level of satisfaction with relationship, life, and sexual satisfaction. And the other thing I was tying this back into what I was talking about in the pop and culture section is the like technology actually allows for more shades of gray when it comes to consensual non-monogamy, right? Like if you think about porn, if you think about the emotional relationships you're able to, uh, I thought you, Jacob, I just, I literally thought you just said corn. I was like, Oh, he's real deep (laughs) into Iowa. I was like, I don't get that. But porn porn with a, with a P makes a lot more sense in that context. So continue. (laughs) So shout out to corn casserole. Again, it shows kind of as Sarah was talking about the importance of having a discussion about boundaries around your romantic partnership right? What do you consider consensual non-monogamy? If your partner is watching porn, do you talk about that? I think you should. Yeah. And what that means for your relationship and what are the boundaries along this sexual continuum that are okay for you and your partner? Um, It also made me think about, I don't know if any of you have heard of the book Sex at Dawn. So um, if you're familiar with uh, evolutionary psychology and there's some pushback and some stuff that we'll talk about, the, the typical model of evolutionary psychology is that humans evolved to try to pursue partners that uh, could provide them the most right. like benefit in a certain way. Uh, just for well, the record, person, I am not a fan of evolutionary psychology, yeah. but go on. <laughs> well, this person pushes back against that model, oh, and he actually argues that humans evolved to be sexually non-monogamous. Is that if you study hunter-gatherer groups or uh, apes that are closest biologically to us, that they tend to engage in consensual non-monogamy. And he also highlights a lot of physiological characteristics that he says that we humans evolve for that as well. So it's a really interesting read um, because I think that there has been this stigma around consensual non-monogamy, but it's about like unhappy people do it. Right. But I really think that it can be a happy, thoughtful, um, important aspect of many relationships if both partners, uh, if that's something that both partners want. Yes, and I think both partners well, is key because whenever I think of consensual non-monogamy at this phase of my life, I think of the job I work full-time, the kids I work full-time, and uh, my my dear loving husband. It just, I, I become even more exhausted than I already am. <laughs> like, holy shit, another person? Oh God, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I think intentional decision-making is really important. Yes. It's, Talk it's, more uh, about that, about intentional decision-making. Well, I think that's what Jacob's saying is that this idea that open communication matters whether you're considering non-monogamy or whether you're not, whether that's on your radar or whether that's never been on your radar, that having these intentional decisions about the boundaries of your relationship, who it includes, what your guidelines are, what you're each okay with, what's acceptable, what's expected is something that should happen pretty early on and continue to happen as relationships evolve and experience transitions and just aging. I think that it's should that kind of boundary decision making should be intentional whether or not 
polyamory, swinging, etc. is even on the horizon. Agreed. I concur. Finally, time for good or bad advice. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Where we talk about pervasive relationship advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Sarah, Jacob, did your grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? <laughs> Did your parents give you advice about friendship or romantic relationships? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that you thought was kind of odd? Or maybe it struck you as poignant. Yes. That's amazing. In this section of the show, (laughs) we talk about that advice and decide with our expert panel of Sarah and Jacob if it was good or bad. Ah, If you have been on the receiving end of some relationship advice you'd like us to talk about, please send it to us. We would love to talk about it. You can leave us a message at 865-229-6775. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at attachpodcast. And while you're on the interwebs, please like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your loved ones. Not in a passive-aggressive way, though. Like, don't be like, you need to listen to this podcast because I need better boundaries. (laughs) Don't be passive-aggressive about it. Yeah, or, um, you know, just say, oh, my gosh, have you heard about that new show, Feed? I just heard about it from this amazing podcast. Maybe you should listen to it. That could also be passive-aggressive. But listen, um, it's really hard to share this podcast. Maybe some people just say, like, they're these funny people. I want them to be my best friend. You should listen to them, too. Oh, my God. Is that too much? (laughs) That's a hard sell. (laughs) (laughs) It shouldn't be that challenging. (laughs) We'll come up with some good sample sample dialogue for you guys in the future. So the one piece of advice someone sent in, and thank you very much for sending it in, was about the five love languages. Now, the five love languages, uh, as soon as she told me about it, I was like, yes, that is very, very pervasive. And I am most certain that we have opinions about it because we have opinions about everything. So the five love, love languages basically say that the way we communicate our affection and love for each other is is different for each person and there are five ways we can communicate our love. The five love languages are words of affirmation, the second one is quality time, the third one is receiving gifts, the fourth one is acts of service, and the fifth one is physical touch. So Um, a really great article, fun and practical ways to speak the five love languages. We're going to go through their recommendations for each of the love languages of are this love language or not, um, how you should express it. But first, right off the bat, I wanted to know if in general, you think this five love languages, is it good or bad advice? Well, I'll start. I am going to be right on the fence again. What? Let me tell Sam, you why. This is shocking. Let me tell you why. Like, I think that, uh, well, first of all, the five love languages isn't about you. So if you're going to your partner and says, hey, I'm a physical touch person. You need to be more physically intimate with me, then you're missing the point of the five love languages. The five love languages is about trying to understand your partner better. Now, I think that if you use it that way, it can be really good. The problem I have with the five love languages is like, I don't think they are so distinct and separate. 
right? Gary Chapman in his oh, book, yeah. he talks about them as totally different languages. But I don't think that they are, right? Like, I feel like if you are intentional about being kind to your partner, bringing them gifts, sending them words of affirmation, doing acts of service for them, being physically connected to them, like this holistic approach to love is potentially better than trying to find one and playing the same note over, over and, and over, over and again. Over again. Yeah, I think that's I like a really good point. I like to think when the love languages can be useful when they're viewed as tools to enhance your relationship, Ooh. not as a specific means to do one thing over and over again. Right, as if your partner can only speak that one singular <laughs> language. Don't we all all want bilingual partners? Or trilingual? Yeah. Sarah, what? Um, I am not on the fence. I um, am not a fan of this. I've gotten asked about this book countless times over the last... 10, 15 years, and mostly from friends or family members who've come across it. And what I usually say to them is, I don't think if it's something that you've found and you have found it to be helpful to understand yourself or your partner, or you feel like it can help create some meaningful change for you, then there's nothing wrong with that. If you have found something that you believe in and it works, go to. But if you're asking me as a member of this expert yes, panel I am. how I feel about it, <laughs> I think, all right, rather, I, I know there is no science behind yes. the five love languages. It's all um, anecdotal. This, this gentleman has invented this, uh, got bananas popular in the 90s. It has proliferated. People have bought it, bought into it. And he is not someone who he himself could sit on an expert panel of relationships necessarily. I don't believe he has any training or education in the science of relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure he has a background in anthropology and theology, which while may include some focus on how we relate to each other, is not any of the science about how we form or maintain relationships. So if this is powerful and important or meaningful to the individual reader, go to town. Would I recommend someone buy it? Absolutely not. I think there are alternatives to consider, including, for example, like Sue Johnson's Hold Me Tight. I think that book I recommend to couples a lot. Um, John Gottman's there's, uh, book. Which Jacob's have Jacob's mentioned, I think, his seven dates no, book Yeah, well, so he recently. has eight dates, but he also eight has dates. the seven principles that make that's marriage right. work. That's, yeah, that's good. Uh, that's right. Also, Esther Perel, Mating in Captivity, really good. Uh, Emotionally Focused Couple Therapy for Dummies is a nice little hands-on workbook for regular lay people. You also don't need to be on an expert panel. But these things are based in actual science by actual romantic relationship researchers. Exactly. Okay. So we have a, a fence sitter and a, why don't you find some real science? Um, <laughs> All the haters, watch out. Last week it was, or last two times ago, it was the uh, etiquette. What were they called? Etiquette? The etiquette made up, coach? made up. Uh, etiquette coach yeah etiquette coaches yeah. that were going to at her and now it's going to be all the love language champions that are going to at her listen I'm so prepared 
please. All she has to do is say hashtag science and uh, we're good. Um, yeah. Despite that, let's go on and see what they recommend um, doing and not doing for partners who, who may uh, fall into specific categories. So the first one is if your person um, that you love is a word of affirmation type, This these are some of the things they need and I'm going to list some of them that they don't need and get your feedback. They need compliments affirmation, kind words, which affirmation makes sense because it's in the title. So if it wasn't there, but anyway, (laughs) a listening ear. If the person you love is a words of affirmation person, they do not need the assumption that they know how loved they are, the assumption that they know you are proud of them, emotionally harsh words. So can I just say that I think this just sounds like a human need to connect. (laughs) Everybody needs to be affirmed and validated. And we don't like it when people who we think love us never affirm or validate that. I mean, that's how many... How many like you know movies about basic white dudes have there been about their dad never said they loved them and they've always tried to work hard to make their dad proud and have their dad say that they love them? I think that we have to look at this as like a human need. Everybody needs some words of affirmation. That's my take. Basic on it. basic relationship right. maintenance strategies. Just be really clear about how you care about people. People don't like unkind words. Right. The, and, and they don't need the assumption that they know that you love them. I feel like everybody needs just to yeah, hear the words, universal. I love them. Yeah, it's yep. absolutely yep. universal. So, I mean, yep. based on my read of this, everyone is a words of affirmation lover. Is that how you say it? Anyway, um, if the person you love needs... <laughs> It doesn't, you can say however you want to, because everybody's just making it up. (laughs) (laughs) Shots across the bow. Oh, I love it so much. Okay. If the person you love needs quality time, they need uninterrupted and focused conversation, one-on-one time, face-to-face conversations. If the person you love is quality time, this is what they don't need long periods of being apart, distracted conversations, long periods without one-on-one time, which makes sense if they need one-on-one time. So, uh, Again, like, as Sarah said, basic relationship maintenance here. If you just never have one-on-one time with your partner or with... You know, like you're never gonna be close to them. Just, it's technically good advice, right? Is what I hear you saying. It's just in a category of only for specific people that makes it. It's bad. starting to feel like they just divided the good things you should do in a relationship into yes. subcategories, That's assuming right. that only some people need them. Yeah, and distract, not wanting distracted conversation. I dare you, challenge you. Please point me to the person who needs distracted conversation. I'd like to meet this person. Just the way I connect most with you is you're just perpetually distracted whenever I talk to you. There might be some underlying things there that maybe we should talk about. I think we we did an academic article several episodes ago about like the different behaviors in relationships that 
um, kind of drive people or present when people come to couples therapy? To not do these things is just a full list of those variables. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> exactly. Just do all of the do not do things and you'll be in couples therapy. So if the person you love needs physical touch, they need nonverbal body language to emphasize love, non-sexual touch that reinforces your presence, lots of simple hugs, hand holdings, and gentle touches. If the person you love is physical touch, this is what they do not need. Long periods without intimacy. I assume they mean sexual intimacy. Physical neglect. Cold giving. Coldly giving affection. Any physical abuse. Like. Wait, wait, what is coldly giving affection? How do you coldly give affection? They're there. Wink. They're there. You just wink at somebody. And also, I don't think anybody needs physical abuse. Like. Who are these people? I think we all then are physical touch people. So the reason I really don't love this category specifically of the five love languages is because it leaves out the idea that this needs to still be consensual. Like validation, back and forth, good, right? Like we can, we're probably implicitly um, consenting to you telling me verbally that I love you. But physical touch, there's this, starts to be this emphasis on if my partner is saying that their love language is physical touch, then I am obligated to be communicating my love in that way, even if I'm not currently interested in physical intimacy. And that's where I really start to dislike the five love languages. And that is an actual chapter in, in the book. So if you read the original five love languages, there is a chapter where Randy Chapman encourages a woman who is no longer sexually interested in her husband to engage of acts of physical such to try to restore their connection. And for me, that fills lots of layers of unethical and also potentially dangerous. Yikes. But just throwing that out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go full on bad advice for this one. Uh, Mm. But also, don't we all love hugs? Like simple yeah, hugs, like, hand holding from our partner. If it's if it yes, and also if it's consent, right? Exactly. Yeah. Still don't want to, right? Like sometimes I don't. You're right. You're right. Sometimes I'm not in the mood to be hugged or other physical right. intimacy, and I expect that to be understood and consensual. Yes, yes. I I'm frustrated or angry with you right now. <laughs> maybe just take a step back. Yeah. I, I was about bad. to say, and I'll cut this. I'm frustrated and angry with you right now. I do not want your penis inside me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> I appreciate the uh, act of physical touch, but I, por favor, do not want it right now. There was about maybe three por different favor. accents in there. You, por favor, don't want it. Very sensitive. Um, if your loved one feels love through receiving gifts, they need thoughtfulness, making your spouse a priority, gifts on special occasions. If your loved one feels love through receiving gifts, they do not need forgetting special occasions, dutiful, unenthusiastic gift giving, materialism, gift Gift giving is not about the most expensive thing. A flower picked from a rose bush can mean everything in the world to someone who receives love through gifts. Like, I feel the other problem I have with the love language is it's really more a dialogue that you develop with your partner or partners, Uh right? Like, if you're attentive and responsive, 
like you're going to know that like, oh, I'm going to get this gift for Christmas because it represents something that represents us that'll be meaningful. Like, right. I don't think it has to be like, well, because my partner is a, what was it? Receiving gifts. I don't remember the title of this one. Receiving gifts. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Receiving gifts. Like, because my partner is a receiving gifts person, I do X. It's no, because we've developed a responsive, attentive relationship, I can predict what I think will help my me and my partner feel connected to each other. So I'm going to engage in lots of these activities to build that connection because it matters to me. And also, I mean, I think the other piece here is to um, be clear that mind reading isn't really an effective relationship right. strategy. So what I what I hear you saying, Jacob, is is it's a dialogue, but also don't be buying gifts for somebody because you think that that's like how you could maybe make up for that argument you had yesterday. Because, like, I realized, I remember that conversation where they told me that receiving gifts was, like, their love language, so I'm just, that's how I'm going to do it. Right. Um, it it really is more about being more intentional, about asking questions and listening when your partner talks so that you know what they would find most meaningful for them in that moment. Yeah. Absolutely. And I just want to meet the person also who really likes dutiful, unenthusiastic gift giving. Like, talk, talk to me about I really that. Like, like, I just like I really it. like pens. I, like pens. Just, I just really pens. like when people give me pens and not necessarily give it to me, but like throw it at me. <laughs> that's right. But only on one day a year. You know what? Actually, I feel like that's how Christmas morning works for me, actually. You could just ch- chuck some really good pennies my way just today. Then it is not I'm, dutiful I'm and unenthusiastic if they know you like it. That's okay. right. That's right. We've been very clear. <laughs> You've had that conversation with your husband multiple yes, times. The quality of the pens that I want. Listen. Matters. Listen. Yep. Teach their own. Um, last but not least... Or maybe it is least, uh, as we've been talking about these. If your loved one feels love through acts of service, they need assisting with chores, ongoing help with housework, helpful partners who are with them no matter what, someone who go out of their way to alleviate their workload. If your loved one feels love acts through acts of service, they do not need lack of follow through, making work more important than your loved ones. Making someone else's to-dos more important than your loved ones. Ignoring requests from help for help. So, again, I just... (laughs) The other problem I have with this is it's not dynamic and flexible, right? I I had a pretty rough accident a few years ago where I broke my shoulders. And literally, Chelsea uh, took care of everything around the house and had to do all of those things. Um... And when she was really sick during her first trimester, I did all of those things, right? There's this flexibility where typically we might be more equally distributed. Right. The, the, the dynamics of our lives and things that happen within our relationship, outside of that relationship, require it to be flexible and change. And also, like, I, like if you're a good partner, you're going to try to be doing all of these things. There's not just, like, one love language you're going to be like, oh... I don't have to talk to you, have sex with you, or buy you presents. All I have to do is the dishes. And <laughs> if I just do the dishes every day for the rest of my life, you're I, I'm doing my duty to make this relationship good. Right. Now I don't, I don't think that's how it works. 
Right. That seems oh, more yeah. like staff than a partner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, that's an I guess if that's what you're into. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. What do we also? What do we think the gender breakdown yes. is on this one? I was thinking this was a very, like, very gendered one. Yeah. This is pretending that all things being equal, men or women could select this love language, but that's not accurate. Um, and. Especially as, as described by assisting with chores and ongoing housework. Oh, I mean, assisting, assisting with chores? Right. Oh, I exactly. hate that phrase. Oh. They might as also well put babysitting language. our children in here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. Oh my God, what, what an amazing partner I have. Gender not specified. <laughs> they decided to pitch in and watch the children for a few hours on Saturday. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, we've reviewed research right out the gate on this podcast about um, the gender breakdown of emotional, mental, cognitive labor in couples. Right. Um, so to pretend that this is just one of the five love languages that anybody could select is really <laughs> missing a process that happens a lot in um, especially heterosexual couples where one person um, can become really heavily responsible for those kinds of duties and obligations and to just assist them with that because they had to tell you it was their love language and then forego gifts <laughs> is really just not a very effective relationship. Right. Or forgive a, a, a nice romantic night of hot, hot sex in order to get somebody to do some... <laughs> or validation. I thought you were going to end that with validation. <laughs> oh. oh, or a validation. We're not right? revealing our own... <laughs> we're not revealing our own love languages here. Just, <laughs> just a hot, hot night of validation. <laughs> validation, yes, yes, validation. Uh, affirmation, that's the one. <laughs> that's the good um, Well, with that said... Um, thank you everyone for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, tweet us with all of those um, bits of advice you want us to talk about. We cannot wait. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>